0: Today we talked to Steph Cressy, Managing Director of Digital Arts New Zealand. We talked to her about her years of experience as a
1: human-centred design practitioner and her experience leading teams in the design area of technology and innovation within the business sector. We talk about our
0: experience and we talk about research within this area of both the business and the technology sectors. So definitely listen to it if you're interested from either a business perspective, a technology design perspective, or if you're a social scientist wanting to get into the industry. Well, hello Steph. Nice Hi. to <laughs> nice to have you with us on the show today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Us too. Um, Every time we have somebody from um, New Zealand and we get the opportunity to bring you in the studio, it's
1: exciting. (laughs) Oh, it's great. It's great sort of um, effort that you're doing and putting putting out stories about the design community. So it's fantastic. Yeah. Well, before we go like in the
0: kind of like the heavy duty of human behavioral and design and your work, I'd like to ask you to just introduce
1: yourself and speak a bit about your personal path with this world. Great. Okay. So um, I am the managing director at a digital design agency, we're very focused in the human-centred design part of that. And so there's about 35 of us there, mostly user experience and strategists, so design researchers, coming up with kind of new products and services for businesses here in New Zealand. So how I got there, though, is, you know, (laughs) when you look back, you kind of realise that there's all these threads, you know, all the way through school and all the way through university that somehow have come to, to play and to bear out in my later career. So I was always really interested in art design but then also I had a bit of a maths brain as well. At university I got very interested in psychology and social sciences, a bit of history and then I ended up going to AUT and did the communications degree there Mm -hmm. and at that point I had thought that I would get into film that was quite big at the time particularly in New Zealand they were starting Lord of the Rings and things like that But at the end of that, they launched this new major, which was called Multimedia. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, this is really interesting. What is this thing, you know? And it was really (laughs) the early days of the internet and bringing that together. And I was fascinated by the idea that you could code... And then suddenly see this thing come to life in a really kind of real mm. way on the internet. And I think it just brought together all of the the pieces that really, really, I was quite passionate about mm. you know, communication, communication theory, telling stories, and then kind of technically bringing that to, to life. And I think the other thing at that time, which was just mind blowing around the internet was how you could so easily connect and reach people across the planet mm. uh, for the first time, really it felt and um, and it was quite a sort of democratic free kind of approach to that too, so that sort of really appealed to to parts of me who sort of really believe in that you know democracy of of the people and connections around mm. the globe so yeah. Yeah, so when I left AUT, there were very little jobs out there, really, in what I did. So at the time, I was kind of a designer, and I was also developing, and I was making websites and CD-ROMs and these digital experiences, but... Business hadn't really embraced it. Mm. There were, I think there might have been one agency in New Zealand that was sort of moving into that space in terms of professional services. So I effectively just sort of started up my own little business and worked with a bunch of other people who I met who were also working in that same space. Yeah, and so sort of progressed through the career, I've sort of played all different roles within that sort of broader design and digital mm-hmm. space. So, you know, as I said, designer, developer, maker, creator, mm-hmm. project manager, sort of strategic lead for mm-hmm. for clients and their businesses, and obviously more laterally kind of leading the, the business itself mm-hmm. and leading design teams. Great. It, it's always interesting like to ask our speakers about their path, because it's almost all of the time it's quite a non-linear path. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, and I kind of look back and I feel really happy that I managed to stumble into a moment in time where the mm. digital transformation was happening, because yeah. I think I would have ended up drifting along, yeah. not really knowing what I wanted to do, because mm. there were so many varied interests. Mm. But actually, I feel like I've also been quite lucky, because being part of that journey for the last 20 years... Things have been new every you know year or two, yeah, so that interest is always kind of peaked, so you never actually lose that passion in kind of what you're doing either, yeah. And
0: you were talking earlier about this optimism and the perception of democratization of yes. access that happened with the uh, beginning of the internet. Yes. And I wanted to ask you, how do you find that today? Do you find it that it's still the case? And, and maybe you can also speak a bit to what is happening nowadays around us with these concerns around data, yep. privacy, security, these big companies that are, yep. you know, they started somehow on the same kind of wave,
1: Right with the same kind of idealism of democratizing that's, access. That's right. I've been thinking about this quite a bit. Because I think actually when I when I talk about it, I end up sounding fairly negative and I feel like there's quite a dystopic kind of future ahead for <laughs> us, right? But I also believe that we come into these things, as you say, with the right intent. You know, we're kind mm-hmm. of there, we see a problem as human beings, we design something around that. We get really excited about stitching together technologies that are going to mm-hmm. solve or, you know, solve a challenge or an opportunity for humans. What we're not very good at is exploring all of the unintended scenarios and consequences that are going to come out from Mm. that. And you don't actually know what those are typically until things are in the hands of people at scale, you know, and you get the, the shifts in society and economics at the same time. So it's quite a wicked ecosystem to try and design for. One of the things I am quite critical of in terms of design practice is this idea of always designing these ideal future states you know we're always talking about these customer journeys and what's the ideal future state but they're never long enough you know they're never sort of a 30 year 20 year view Mm -hmm. they're always literally a year or so like what do we need to design to get delivered to get something to market to get the kpis and the roi back within 12 months So I don't think we do a good enough job of really exploring all those kind of future states. Coming back to your original point, I do worry that that original intent of of the Internet and connecting people has been eroded a little bit. And I feel like the sort of class and race stratification is pretty inherent in how those systems are, are built and designed. That is awesome because we've had a few episodes
0: on our podcast and still to come where we kind of explore this, Great. which is awesome. But we And we also explore like, you know, when you go towards those symbolic states of full democratization, that also sits very close to dystopia. Yes. Do you know, like yeah. perfection sits, sits yeah, yeah, close yeah, yeah, to yeah. dystopia. And I feel like with the internet, we're in this stage now where basically we're embracing the messiness of what it is yeah. rather than believing that we live in an idealized state of connection. Yes. So trying to kind of see, you know, how does it work in the reality of where we are right now with all that complexity and the challenges that it implies,
1: you know? And yeah, and how is it going to play out? And I know Black Mirror is often cited, but I just think that's brilliant in terms of saying, here are these things that are Mm -hmm. happening in society today. If we took a different view on that and we actually projected it forward a little bit and kind of played with the narrative of that, this is actually the reality we're living in, Mm -hmm. in many cases. So
0: one of the things that we are exploring here on the podcast is the contextual lives of people sure. as they work with technology. And we don't really deal so much with idealized states or like um boxing stereotyping things in saying, you know, this is the perfect end of this journey map or this is the non-messy version of how you navigate technology. We we actually love the messy part of it and you know how people engage with it and the good and the bad that mm. comes out of mm. that. And we want to we always want to kind of try to ask our speakers to speak a bit to that messy world, um, because we also feel that that's a very fertile ground for insight. Mm -hmm. So I I kind of like want to start asking you into the methods that you use to do that. And we start by asking you, how would you define an insight? and,
1: And then how do you work with it? Sure. I see insight as not just a bit of data. It's not just an observation or something that gets thrown out. I think there's a real poetry to an insight. It's quite interesting. I think when you have people collaborating around synthesis of the kind of the data and the inputs mm. and, and the you know observations and the research that they've done, there's this moment that happens when everyone goes, oh, yes, there it is. That's the insight. Yeah. You know, And there's this real sort of connection and people, they're like, yeah, there it is, mm. as opposed to something that gets encapsulated that is more of a oh yes of course you know mm. you don't want people to react like with a yes of course to an insight you want for it to provoke thought yeah um, and I think they're usually quite nuanced I think they need to. Yeah, really change perspective. Actually, I think they they're there to drive change and mm. to create alignment. And in our world, we use them all the way through our process. So we use them right up front in what we would call discovery. So typically, we're kind of working into you know commercial organisations, so businesses they've got a goal that they're trying to achieve, and usually that's sort of a commerci- commercially biased kind of goal, but with the view that they're trying to do that through delivering great customer experiences. Mm-hmm. So they'll come to us with a challenge or a problem and our job is really to uncover how the customers are working in their daily lives and how their organisation and their product or service can actually meet kind of needs or opportunities. So the process of finding insights is that research piece that's done kind of up front, mm-hmm. and that might be contextual inquiry, it may be sort of service safaris, it may be interviews, often sitting inside contact centres and listening into calls, combining that with you know whatever quantitative or other research mm-hmm. that's being done as well. And then from that, we're typically take all that data and create the insights. And usually we do that as quite a collaborative approach with the teams that we're working with inside the organization as well. Mm. So they come with you on this yeah. journey of yep. discovery? Yeah, often we'll be training and teaching teaching them in terms of how to go out themselves as well. But certainly the synthesis process is something that we find if you're collaborating with the broader team, the product owners or the business owners, then you, you're you really able to get much more out of it. Mm. And, and they carry further along and they're able to sort of really drive that as they sort of go into the delivery mode. Yeah. So that's sort of, I guess, more that generative, explorative research, which is driving out, you know, broader insights around behaviour and attitudes and things like that. And then when we come into actually doing more of the design work and taking that into designing digital products and services, that's when, I guess, you move into more of a design research and validation phase of creating something, prototyping it, and then getting response and reaction from your potential end users and customers.
0: What do you think is preventing that insight to emerge earlier inside the, the organisation? Before you go and do the research? Yeah.
1: I think organisations have a very blinded view of their customer. I think actually, a, a lot of them do a lot of research mm-hmm. and one of the challenges and one of the things that we end up having to do is actually stitch together a bunch of stuff that's already been done and start to try and create stories out of that and kind of bring something to life because they end up in four thousand different powerpoint decks or excel spreadsheets and things like that so i think access storytelling bringing all that data together so it actually has a human voice to it i think it's mm-hmm. one of the things that stops stops organizations from looking at it i think People inside businesses are also paid to be experts and so they're coming with solutions all the time. So that that space where you can actually stand back and say, hey, we don't know, this is the messy bit, you know, (laughs) let's find out, you know, are we even right? Quite hard for businesses to to stay in that space for for a period of time. What is your favourite insight that you could speak to? There's there's probably layers of them. I think there's attitude and behavioural sort of insights. And then for us, obviously, we get into sometimes more tactical stuff. Um, I think if we look at something like retirement, which is a topic that we're working into at the moment, there is this interesting view when you actually stand back and look at human's lives from beginning to end and actually say well what's the journey that people take from leaving school you know getting their first jobs starting to build up some wealth moving away from literally just paying the bills to actually having some money that they can they can mm-hmm. spend where across that whole journey which is years and years and years long are there the sort of barriers to them thinking okay I'm really going to start focusing on you know a healthy wealthy retirement And what we find is that there's sort of quite significant attitude and and behavioural shifts that sit right in the middle of that journey Mm -hmm. that you have to kind of get through. I think we've seen really interesting stuff on a very practical product-level basis where, you know, designers are, oh, we need to make things as simple as possible. So I'm talking in the space of kind of, you know, reasonably complex financial transactions, insurance, banking kind of space where we're starting to build digital self-service experiences for things that previously would only exist kind of Mm. online or in contact centre. And so the pervasive kind of principle around digital design is make it as simple as possible and people will love it and it will be great. Actually, when you get in and you're working into those spaces, you realise that you need to actually create a bit of friction inside that digital Mm. design and the experience because people start to feel like, things aren't quite right and they start to lose a little bit of trust with the organisation and with the process that they're going through Mm because they expect that it should be a little bit harder Mm -hmm. and they expect that you're going to ask a few more questions and so you almost need to design the process so it has more friction than what you'd imagine it needs to. Things like where people can easily add more debt if you make it as simple as a one-click button, which you literally can, that actually creates quite a bit of anxiety and tension with the end user. And so you need to actually design it so that they don't have that sense of okay. tension. Yeah. So, so it's quite interesting, sort of, you know, broader life-level mm. insights that help inform design and then write down once you actually land that onto digital experiences, there's interesting ways that you need yeah. to design for people's psychology, Yeah.
0: So I wonder, do you have some methods uh, to go around this, you know, moments when insight clashes with bias and especially organisational bias or like some internal truth that they have, which was this one, you have to make it simple and then it will work. That's yep. a, that's an internal truth that yes. is kind of shake to yes. uh, difficult to shake. Yes. How do you manage to get it to shake?
1: Yeah, yeah. that's a very, very good question. I think that's probably why... Over the years, we've got very focused on a collaborative process Mm. because people have to see that and they have to really embody that insight and really own it in order for that to travel all the way through. And sometimes, to be fair, there are insights that we learn about humans and customers or end users that are in complete contradiction to what the business is trying to achieve, right? Mm. And so, you know, there is a payoff in some cases, I think. Mm. But yes, I think having people through the process, having them see stuff is is really the only way that you can make those insights travel. I think also there's the idea that insights have to tell a story as well. So there's quite a craft in terms of how you sell those insights in a way, I suppose. What's quite a nice technique. Is almost sort of set up the assumption or the bias that the whole team came into the process with, and you sort of state that as this is what we thought. Yeah, and look, wasn't it amazing? This is what we learned, you know. And so it sort of becomes a bit of a, a you know, a contrast. That's that's quite a nice way to people then for people to embrace it as opposed to reacting yeah. to it in a really negative okay. way.
0: Yeah. Another question would be: There's a lot of ritual around getting that to happen right like they they decide to go for a research they Mm -hmm. employ a partner to do that Mm -hmm. they go through all this process of discovery development prototyping and at the end you know that that something tangibilizes into something Mm -hmm. so the insight and the bias they're kind of like in that very beautiful world where there's a ritual to make that happen Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. how do you get it to stick after
1: the ritual is over Um, So we work in an applied kind of design space. Mm -hmm. So for us, I think, again, that's that's a fantastic question because there's nothing worse than delivering a whole bunch of insights or research that literally ends up in a PowerPoint and then gathers dust in the same way strategy often does. So I guess... We like to think that our power comes from actually making that stuff concrete and mm. embodying it into something quite tangible. And that could be, say a prototype that actually says, and this is what this looks like in real life, mm. or it could be more of a narrative or a you know storytelling type structure like a sort of you know storyboard or sometimes we use video and things like that as well, just to sort of actually take those insights and embody them into something that becomes quite engaging and can mm. travel, yeah and can carry on through the organisation. Sometimes these things take years. So, you mm-hmm. you know, you need something that it's carries the human story. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I wanted to ask you, because you were mentioning this, that it takes years, and I love that. Yeah. Because one of the things that, that we are also interested in is, you know, cultural impact inside an organisation. Mm. is not something that happens from one moment to the next. Or if it actually happens due to extraordinary conditions, it's hard to maintain. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering... Due to this you know factor, um, what does it say to the partnership models that you normally have with clients? Is it some form of partnerships that
1: that also positively could impact that? Yes, I think so. Um, we work very closely and in deep sort of partnership with our clients. we tend mm-hmm. to. Um we've always had this sort of philosophy of, There's the design process and the research process, and those are the the activities that you do. But we always see that there's this thing that's happening around that process, Mm -hmm. which is the stuff that changes culture. Yeah, because you bring people into that process from inside Mm organisations where they may not normally be exposed to it, and they, you know, they really are shifted because they may see some customer insight that totally shifts the way that they think about doing their job, Um, or they get to work in ways that are you know, deeply collaborative and kind of energetic and creative, which again, they may not get to do that inside organisations. So we also believe that people inside businesses understand the business, that's their domain, right? Um, And part of our job as designers and researchers is to understand that a little bit, but actually that core subject matter expertise needs to sit client-side. So that Mm co-blended and multidisciplinary approach to the partnership that helps them get through the problems that they've got is really important. Clients that we've worked with for a long period of time, you see a very slow trajectory to maturity around accepting and taking in customer Mm. and insight and research. Um, And it starts often very small and very ad hoc. It starts with some insights that really shifted people's thinking. Often that then had to result in some real material business results for people to sort of sit up and take notice, you know, and then it starts to scale out over time and you start to get evangelists and Mm -hmm. in some cases you get, um, you know, they believe that research and understanding customer and getting closer to customer users is a core capability and a strategic driver for them, in which case it starts to get investment and it Mm -hmm. starts to get – capacity and resource around it.
0: Yeah, and and it becomes a, a truth of that organization right. and then that really gets translated into structure and culture
1: and That's everything right. else, yep. right? I think that the saddest things that you see are where you see a couple of people inside businesses yeah. and have made some really great grounds, but they haven't, it hasn't actually really embedded into culture, right mm. deep into the fabric. And then they might leave or they might move on and then slowly the organization sort of rolls back a little bit in yes. terms of its maturity and its acceptance of that as a way of working, yeah.
0: Yeah, you, you see that quite quite often. Um, I wanted to ask you, how would you define a good researcher? What
1: would be the qualities that mm. you look for in a researcher? Designers like to come up with solutions. Um, that's their bias, right? Their, yeah. their, their bias is to create stuff, to solve things. Um, and researchers, a good researcher, holds the space of stopping and sitting in the inquiry mm-hmm. for longer, I think without jumping to any solution. Mm -hmm. Um, So the ability to be able to work those two people together and get that magic out of them, I think, is, is really great. I think, you know, obviously there's technical skills around great research, but sort of coming back to that idea of how you get insights to stick, researchers need to be able to tell great stories and they need to be able to tie the insights that they're developing and seeing to whatever problem space it is that the broader team or the business is looking to resolve I think in New Zealand also, there's space for researchers to bring a broader view to the table too. I don't think we're yet in business seeing really great exploration of broader cultural context, social context, you know, economic um, drivers and things like that, that if you actually expanded out that problem mm. space in the research piece a little bit more, we could find some much more interesting things to be exploring. Mm-hmm. Yeah
0: where do you, do you see them coming? Um, the researchers that you hmm. do
1: work, uh, what is their path of uh, of skill? Often very varied, as as we talked about before. Um more and more I'm actually seeing people come out of yeah the social sciences, they might have done psychology, something like that. they've um, maybe had one or two kind of early jobs inside organisations mm-hmm. and then they're really navigating back towards more of a pure research place Um, and I think the user experience and that customer experience is so much in demand that it's it's quite a good time for people to navigate back to that. They may have come from more of a business analyst background Mm -hmm. or often we find designers who have come up through creating product and, and services, digital products and services, get to a place in their career, particularly if they're very curious and are much more interested in moving towards the strategy end of things, find their way over into more of that research space as well. You,
0: you were mentioning earlier about the ability to, um, to sit with the uncertain but also be able to translate into the doing yes. aspect of yes. it. Yep. I yep. wonder how do you train that? Mm. Is it trainable in the first
1: place? I think so. I think in practical everyday world, there is a lot of pressure to move really quickly from that, like, <laughs> you know, sitting in that inquiry space. Yeah, There's a lot of pressure to be getting products to market quickly, you know, MVP and speed. So I think it takes a lot of trust and a lot of discussion between the people who are trying to sit in that space with the people who are actually tasked usually with delivering business results really quickly to really make space and to recognize that that is going to reduce risk it may reduce um, the business from undertaking investment in things that may not actually mm-hmm. stick
0: yeah. in the market
1: yeah but I think it's trainable mm-hmm. yeah
0: and I, I love it that you kind of connected to conversations yeah. you know and understanding objectives common objectives and understanding like the context that drove that kind of yeah necessity for speed yes
1: um yes well I mean I kind of see that as almost part of the research problem you know it's like okay well what's the business trying to achieve as well like there are that's part of the research which gives you the context under which you need to be
0: I know that um that when you are under a time pressure um actually the the way you perceive time changes and the way you find time to think also changes. Mm. So it's actually when you are under time pressure, you have less time, but you're also time moves faster for you. Yes, and and that a lot of people associate actually with stress um, and offer multitasking. And um, and I was wondering how if you if we could connect that to the difficulty or the difficulty of reaching to an insight, the, the difficulty of sitting in the moment mm. and allowing for, for mental space to think. Mm. Do you know, how, how does the, these two things kind of influence each other?
1: Yeah, it's, that's a really good question. And I don't know if I can shape an answer. I might go on a couple of tangents. Yeah. Because um, I think sometimes the pressure actually incites thinking that's actually way more interesting because Mm. you've kind of got these moments where you're kind of away from the sort of deep work and suddenly these things really come to you. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you are under pressure to be kind of getting stuff on paper and delivering it out very quickly, then I think you can end up in too much of a surface space, right? Mm. There's a really interesting model that's been developed um, out of, I think it's MIT, but it's this idea of... um, it's it's a kind of a U framework and it's mostly used in the sort of social economic you might know. You I've know. done it. Yes, I've done it. Is the U Lab right? Yes,
0: that's it. I've done the U Lab. Okay,
1: yeah. and I love the fact that they they mm. they have this sort of research piece and then there's this bottom of the U which is this moment which is engineered to do exactly yeah. that. Yeah. To really sit with what you've learned, you've been in the immersion piece, you've got all your research and your insights, and it's a, it's a group based piece, right? So you then kind of. Sitting in that as a group, but then also individually, and then you come back together. So I thought I thought that was quite nice. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what was your experience. Of that was it? exactly
0: it, and it connected to what you were mentioning at the beginning with the practice of holding space. Mm. There's a lot of uh, methodologies around how to sp- hold space for groups, especially when they are in moments mm. of difficulty. Yeah, you know, like that come with conflict. That it's either inner conflict or outer conflict. Do you know, how do you facilitate holding space for something that you sit with that discomfort or with that pressure wherever it comes from? And you let it speak to you Mm. and to guide you towards what's next. And, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, I think also in chaos theory, they talk a bit to that, that the fact that it's it's not, it has a destructive side, but it also has a constructive side because you can't really build if you haven't. You have to break it
1: down. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But there's a lot of discomfort in Mm. sitting with that.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. I'm reminded of some sort of stakeholder workshops that I would have run quite a long time ago now and I, I don't know if I'd run them the same now, but that idea of yeah, forcing quite different perspectives to either do things like, you know, force rank stuff or really focus on one or two priorities when, you know, they literally just can't as a as a group of people and they find it really uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. Um, and how much at that stage we were probably in the mode of just forcing that to happen yeah. inside a workshop experience. But I think you'd probably go about it in slightly different ways now
0: yeah i mean most of these approaches that i've read about Mm -hmm. and experienced myself um are quite connected to cognitive behavioral therapy Mm -hmm. and also group therapy and they're kind of and a few that i've seen that are very interesting they take away the rational aspect that they say that that's the thing that gets you stuck that the yes. unstuckness comes from your body rather than yes, your mind. That's nice. Yep. So, you know, and it gets the group to sit and, yep. and speak to the tension of your their body. Yeah. Where is it? How does it feel? Yeah. Rather than what do you think? Yes, great. Yep. But that can take an organization or a team into quite a a rocky ride because it really being intimate and comfortable with you, your very colleagues. confrontational. Yeah.
1: Yep. It can be very confrontational. Yep. And I think, um, I don't know if you know um, Liz Sanders, she's an American design leader. So she's quite big in the, in the co-design space. So I think some of her techniques probably sit in that space a little bit as well as, playing with things and creating things together which takes away from the rational and moves into a much more lyrical kind of space mm. where you can sit with attitudes and, 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 and places like that much more than the thinking.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I think this leads me to my next question because these kind of were kind of blur the lines between product design and culture, yes. team culture yes. exploration, yep. team facilitating conversations between a group. Yep. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to you to speak a bit to this
1: topic and how yeah. do you approach it in your work? That's oh, great because that's sort of definitely where we have a lot of conversations in the space and it's the piece that's sort of really interesting to me. Like as you move through your career, you're kind of focused in different parts and then you stand back and go, actually, the thing that makes things really successful is engineering and designing the space for people to be working so, that they're really effective. Um, and so, we do a lot of thinking around what's the optimal operating model for a team to get what they need for the problem at hand. We do a lot of conversation around how do we get the best communication happening. Mm. Um, interesting techniques, I think, like kind of just finding out where people are thinking and feeling, you know, on a really regular daily basis so that there's this. Open dialogue around. I'm feeling quite scared about this thing that we're about to embark on, or I don't have the skills. Can someone help me? So just getting all of that stuff really out and open, mm. um, and then just more simple, practical stuff like just wrapping a, a project um, operating framework around things helps people understand what they're supposed to be doing and by when. And you know, when we have the stand up, what's the yeah. sort of approach to that? Um, so that's kind of on a sort of day to day level. And then I think when you kind of come up to organizational level, it's sort of where do particular skill sets live inside the organization? How do they connect together so that they feel like they're pushing their practice or their craft forward as well as sort of delivering to what needs to be done on a a day-to-day basis? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we find ourselves working into that space quite a bit with organizations because I think businesses typically don't focus on that so much
0: yeah I think w- what was interesting for me coming into this space in New Zealand was that normally these type of cultural mindsets go beyond an organization, and they're very specifically rooted in a culture's mm-hmm. um, in one country's or ideology of a country around that space, mm-hmm. right? Like how does the cul- how does the culture of this particular country, um, speak to the topic of uh, vulnerability at work, uh, intimacy at work. Collaboration. Collaboration. Yep, that's a great
1: point. Yep.
0: Um, so there's a very interesting book that was written about New Zealand in that particular topic, which was called I Think Big Boys Don't Cry. <laughs> right? Do you know it? Do you know it? No, but I'm going to write it down and have a look at it. I hope I'm not getting the title wrong, but it's basically a book that, that talks about um, the stigma, especially of New Zealand, powerful men. Mm. And the book was written by the, uh, through the perspective of sports, mm-hmm. which is one of New Zealand's pride and joy yes. in terms of accomplishments. Uh, but also it's a kind of a symbol of what a strong man should look like, right? Yes. Um, and then when you have a strong man like that, there's a strong stigma around that strong man showing weakness, Showing vulnerability. And that actually links even more to depression, anxiety, yeah. and all these kind of effects that come when you have such a strong stigma around expressing and
1: having, emotion. Having to kind of know like, hmm. there's two threads for me there. One, when I kind of really got deeply into human centered design as a, as a way of being, that whole need to be the person who had the answers went away because hmm. actually you just find out what the answers are yeah you find out through your research and you find out through the people that you're working with and it's a collaborative process right which is amazing yeah um but i think yeah i think i think you're right there's a pervasive kind of bias towards the people needing to know, which is embodied then into ego, which then sets up a whole bunch of barriers to yeah to uh, those ways of working. Yes, and I think especially in the corporate environment,
0: what I've seen here, there's a strong like the resistance to true collaboration yeah. comes with the difficulty of expressing intimacy and vulnerability yes. with your team. Yes, um, and then when you when you start to really explore that space of intimacy and vulnerability, that's when. Um, yeah the collaborative approach starts really to shine I think yeah. um, and it's not just words on a PowerPoint but it's no. it, it comes into it descends into action
1: because it's it's everything I mean it's sort of sentiment it's the language that people are using it's the I don't know you know it's mm. it's all those signals that particularly leaders and businesses have to I think struggle start around to, yeah and they have to embody it yeah. if they want to make change but they're grown up and they're trained not to not to behave like that so yeah So one very dear topic
0: to us that we want to ask about has to do with ethics. Mm -hmm. Ethics and design Mm -hmm. and research. How do you work with ethics in your day-to-day job? Yeah.
1: We have a framework that we work to. We are not often working in spaces where it's... you're know, you talking about really strong regulation or anything, we're not working in an academic space. I think when you start to move into health and places like that, that's when you would start to come up against that. I think it's a really good question, though, when you start to talk about data, customer data. Um, With the larger organisations, obviously there's there's a lot of things that we're having to do around making sure that that data is kept Mm -hmm. secure and private and things like that once we've sort of been through the process of research. But I think it's interesting when you are in that design research space and in the you know, particularly in digital products and things like that, because often the research is happening out on the street and it's yeah. happening in branch and it's actually, you know, it's getting looser and looser and further and further away from um, an academic, you know, ethical kind of framework, mm-hmm. I suppose. And then, you know, we talked a little bit before around what are the other things that sit around that, you know, are you making sure that you're researching across enough kind of diversity? Mm-hmm. Um, are you making sure that, you know, the, the spread of people that you're bringing into the room or that you're working with is, is really underpinning kind of what needs to be done in terms of bringing those, all those voices to the table? Yeah. I
0: think another question that kind of links to that is um, when we had um, on our podcast a speaker um, Animi, she's an anthropologist from India and I asked her kind of like a question very similar to that but it yeah. had to do with access. Um, and it made me think w- w- through her answer, it made me think that the, it, it's to start that conversation you have to stop categorizing business as evil yes. and um, the people as good yes, that are yes, outside yes, of yes, the yes, business, yes. Yep. because you know, like once you start with that, you know, you're not addressing this segment, or you're addressing it in a, in a bad capitalistic way. You are not you're not really facilitating understanding no. or business development potential.
1: That's right. And they'll just be like, "Yeah, but we've got this project that we need to deliver." So yes. that's very nice. But can we have another conversation about that later? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yep. So uh, rather than framing it as an
0: ethical. Um, as an ethical kind of attack, you know, how do you facilitate conversations in during the whole project yeah. um, around
1: positive servicing? That's right. Mm. And maybe you have to initially at least tie it to what's the opportunity that we're missing mm. in a really capitalistic kind of way. I, I don't know. I don't know if you've had any successful tactics that you've undertaken in, in your work.
0: Mm. I, I, I think... For me, at the beginning, that was quite a struggle, mm. just because as an anthropologist, you're constantly trained to face your own biases, mm. and that's quite challenging. Yeah, starting starting on. So um, when I moved from business to anthropology, I realized that I had very strong resentment towards businesses. Yes, it was one of the reasons that which is a bias by itself. Yes, right? yep. by itself. Yep. Um, and uh, I came out of business with that very idealistic and very wrong perception that you know capitalism is evil um, let's go and save the penguins yep. somewhere in some form or another no um, so it took me a while to kind of deconstruct why I had left the business world at mm. the time and what exactly fueled that kind of perception but once I um, deconstructed that I kind of stopped looking at businesses as people that are there inside trying to make money and to harm
1: others. I, I think this serves a really nice thread and actually we we do a lot of we have a lot of discussions around this stuff at work because the people that tend to gravitate towards this kind of empathy, you know, research mm. type work do have really strong views on what makes a great society and how we need to be supporting all people within yeah. society. And so they are often having these you know quite deep internal struggles with okay but I'm designing this thing for this massive corporation and you know yeah. aren't they all just evil um, and we have to keep coming back to but what's the job that we can do yeah. today in at hand where well, we can make these things as useful as possible for yeah. people we can make people's lives a little bit easier and I, I also think I, because you were
0: asking me earlier, what would I, f- what did I find useful in mm. my experience? Mm. And I think wh- what I found useful, and particularly through anthropology, is when you have the feeling that er- when you don't trust an organization to do good, or you don't trust their intentions, um, you have to start looking into their organizational culture. Mm-hmm. Are there people inside that company happy with what they do? Yes. Do they feel rewarded in their work? Yeah. do they hear do they feel valued um, as part of that organization? Yep. What fuels this perception yes. of um, bad intent yes and and normally with when you when you meet people or you have a perception that they are not really thinking, that is a symptom
1: of an organizational culture challenge. Yeah, it's, it's a great it's a great lens actually because actually the majority of the organisations that you're networking with you can see that people love trying to deliver great outcomes for their customers, yes. you know, the people on the front line, the people in branch, you know and, and so there is a sort of good underlying kind of value piece there. I think for us particularly we know pretty quickly where there's organisations that we just won't go well with <laughs> and we'll walk away from relationships with them because there's just the value system is too far apart
0: yeah and, and normally when they dehumanize the customer yep. that is just a symptom that they are dehumanized themselves Absolutely. inside that system yeah and it's if they are if they are not on a path of you know changing that or if they're not on a at least an interesting inquiry path into yep. how to do that you're right like there's no they have different um expectations it's not a really a match yeah Um, I was wondering if you've had any experience with social scientists in the kind of work that you do.
1: Um, A little bit. So we've got people who definitely kind of went through some of that at university. Um, In my very old past and when I first got interested in this in... UK in the 2000s when it was kind of you know the big bubble there was a big push at that point to be bringing social scientists into those startups and and using their Mm. their thinking to find kind of new opportunity areas so that was when I kind of went oh I can stitch together the interest that I've got with this other thing and yeah okay um and we we have a few of our listeners
0: in that space um, in social science sure. students or thinking about you know entering the the business sector into mm-hmm. a role of research. Mm. Um, what would you recommend them? like what would be some advice that you would give them um, to kind of explore this this world?
1: Um, if if it was me and I had my time again and I was coming yeah. out of university, <laughs> I would be getting into um, into more that kind of linguistic space and the interaction that we're starting to see between robots and humans and Ooh. the, you know, what the sort of perception and behaviour and, and the way that we actually need to design those experiences to to be really healthy. Okay. I think that's a really interesting space for social science, combined with probably some other kind of backgrounds as yeah. well to be moving into. Um more practical terms, I think there's, as, as we said before, there's, there's huge demand in terms of that user experience um, space. And I think it's a great place for people to, to start, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And particularly to New
1: Zealand, yep. um, what
0: would you advise them? Let's say I'm a graduating student from Auckland University yep. and I'm an anthropologist yep. or a sociologist and I want to work in research. Um, how should
1: I do it? I've met a bunch of people, you know, potential kind of candidates who I've been really impressed with, with those backgrounds who have landed in, you know, organizations that may not be their final home, but they've put their hands up for little projects or little pieces of yeah. work where they've actually been able to go out and kind of apply that research thinking. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, bring some insights back and, and shift whatever the business was about to embark on in slightly different ways. Um, so I think, yeah, you, you, you need to find little ways to bring that stuff to the table, even if you're not really in a, in a job that's kind of totally mm. related to the research piece. I think there's lots of connections in the community um, if you are interested in getting into more of that user experience and more applied yeah. design space. There's lots of um, community events and meetups and things like startup weekends and, yeah. and, and bits and pieces like that that people can get involved with um, just to start to get a bit more experience, yeah. Oh,
0: great. Yeah. Thank you so much, Steph. Oh, it's been an Uh, absolute pleasure. (laughs) I've enjoyed it. It's a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speakers' work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.